Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 26, 2021. I am John Pothortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, a very heated, a very passionate, a very uh, emotive uh, associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Be passionate, Noah. <laughs> we, we, we just got off. We had a big argument in the pre-show, so uh, and you, you'll hear some of it, maybe. Although we don't, we we don't disagree that much, which is why maybe it got so heated. Uh, and senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. I, I just carbo-load before the podcast. You guys actually like it. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Yeah. Hi, John. Yeah. And the and the rarely heated, always equanimous executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. It's early yet. Uh, Abe, in your in your equanimity, yes. Uh, let's talk about what I promised we would talk about at the end of the podcast yesterday, which is um, the uh, Democratic Party's disunity. We were talking a lot about GOP disunity. We'll talk a lot about GOP disunity later in the podcast, but um, uh, we we are we are witness to a kind of mania on the part of Democrats who who have taken the results of the twenty. 20 election, which featured a net loss of 11 seats, I believe, in the House of Representatives, and a less than thrilling showing uh, in the Senate race, in the Senate races, where they thought maybe they were going to win in South Carolina and in Iowa and in uh, Maine and uh, a couple of other places where they, they didn't win. And they ended up, because of weird circumstances, obviously, getting to a 50-50 split with Harris breaking the tie, which means that they get sort of, they get control of the Senate in the most nominal sense. Um, and yet they want to act as though it's 2008 and they won 60 seats in the Senate and have a 50 seat margin in the house with a landslide presidential win of, of seven or eight points, whatever it was that Obama won by. Um, and with the, with the, with the, uh, with the exception of the fact that they knocked off a first-term president, which is always an impressive feat, with 81 million votes, which was an even more impressive feat, um, uh, their presumption that somehow what they really need to do is now pass massive legislation on the Democratic wish list, when that is clearly not what the public mood would suggest from the results of the election, uh, is causing them a significant degree of uh, cognitive dissonance, it seems to me. Well, you can always, I think, count on the Democrats to overreach. Um, uh, I think we're probably all a little stunned that they're doing so so soon. Um, I think part of this, I have to say, is has been facilitated once again um, by Trump um, because he created a moment where... Um, not to bulldoze the Republicans, not that to, to be seen as um, anything but um, completely condemnatory of anything resembling um, GOP policy or uh, the, the Republican standing um, is cowardly and uh, perhaps uh, even a danger to the Republic. I mean, it's funny because, Christine, the, the, the raft of executive orders that everyone's talking about, oh, my God, executive orders, 17 executive orders. It's so crazy. It's so 19, 19. Like, so 19 executive orders. How could this happen? You know, <clears throat> whatever I thought, we thought <clears throat> you know, conservatives and Fox News people were saying, I thought they wanted, uh, you know, they wanted uh, unity and now they're doing this. Every president has done this with prior executive orders. 
I mean, my 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 first book, Hell of a Ride, begins with um, uh, Clinton coming in and wiping out every executive order that George H.W. Bush had passed or had written into law during his presidency. Every single one. Now, there were fewer because people didn't play this game as much with the executive orders. But um, so dating back to 1992, 1993, this is how parties, when they when they switch, when the presidency switches party, you know, switches parties, they come in and say, "Now nah, your executive orders are out." So, so Biden has written some and voided others. It, that seems completely within the realm of the understandable. It is the. I, I disagree with that because for this reason, first of all, the scale in number in the first few days was vast. Nineteen versus what I think the the most that anyone did in that short span of time was like three or four. Like it, this is a this is a big increase. It's and I think to Abe's point. You ha- there is a small window where a lot of voters will look at what Biden is doing and the pace of change that he's trying to enact from the executive as a corrective to what Trump did. It's like, well, Trump overreached, so now we've got to swing back this way with all these correctives. But that window is extremely small and might already be closed. I, I think given the way our news cycles work and the way that the, the kind of absolutely polarized partisan media that we environment we're in now – that's done. Like he, he can argue for a first few days that he threw out all these executive orders to correct, you know, restore balance. But now now we've actually got to talk about governing. And and I do think that their rhetoric is still in this uh, moment of oh all the all this mess that we were left with. We have to just if we overreach, it's only to correct for the American people all all of Trump's mistakes. I just don't think that's a winning message for them beyond maybe even next week. But I think there's another element here, which is that, um, and I know we're going to get to this in more detail uh, in another uh, segment, but um, because the Biden administration has not um, exactly dazzled so far on um, the issue of the pandemic and um, uh, vaccinations, um, there's been you know, a lot, sort of a lot of talk around it, but but um, in terms of substance, there hasn't been um, really a whole lot to to grab a hold of. Um, uh, this is a way of saying, look, we're doing all this. Right. Well, I, I mean, first of all, he said, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z on day one. And a lot of it is, you know, uh, socially significant, but uh, no cost or low cost executive orders changing policy, right? The mo- the two, <clears throat> you know, the most the most notable being, I guess, in the social warfare aspect or the culture war aspect uh, lifting the ban on transgender people in the military, right? So that's that's so that's been done, and that represents a you know that represents a kind of it doesn't cost any money, it doesn't change any real direction for any policy, uh, but it puts up a marker. It says I'm fulfilling my promises. It's it it says waves to the cultural left and says I'm with you. And uh, and is is, is going to have a lasting effect, not just on the military, but it's going to have a lasting effect on perpetuating and deepening the culture war in the United States between people who believe that all these things are fluid and people who believe that you're attacking the very, very model of society and biology and everything and, and nature itself. And so that's that's but it doesn't cost anything. It's <laughs> the point. And it doesn't, you know, and and the policy that's that banned transgender people was itself issued as part of a culture war in the other direction by Trump. So, so here we have 
something like that. And then you have the go through regulations and make sure that they reflect, you know, uh, racial and gender and, uh, and uh, orientation equity. Again, similarly, it doesn't have any practical policy effect because it's, it's declaring that you should go through regulations and make sure that they conform with some vague idea of what these are supposed to be. And it doesn't cost anything, but it's saying, okay, I'm fulfilling my promise to you. I said, I'd do something like this. I'm going to do it. Um, I don't think that's the biggest aspect of this, though. It's, well, well, you know, well, one, one thing to that, that the gathering of that kind of data, however, is only the first step towards actually implementing policies and punitive uh, responses by the federal government to those who don't conform to the numbers that they're going to establish as being the standard. Without, so without question, without question that it, it begins a process that could have very significant meaning and consequences and that that process is something that if I were Biden and the Democrats, I would be very careful about treading very lightly on, not just because I think it's wrong and evil, uh, but because the cultural and political blowback from it could be extreme. Um, and that's why you start it as a process like this and see how much you can sneak in before anybody pays attention. That's that's part of the regular, that's how burrowing in on regulations to control things without anybody actually having to vote on them is so pernicious and so clever. But I want to go to a different point here, which is that uh, that uh, Mitch McConnell, having no real hand to play here, said, uh, I'm not going to come up with a power sharing agreement until you put down on paper that you, Chuck Schumer, will you know abandon any effort to get rid of the filibuster. And you would have thought that McConnell, who was like playing a card, you know, I mean, they're in a negotiation, he plays a card. You would have thought that McConnell had just said, you know, uh, was Tokyo Rose saying, you know, you know, give up, Yankee boy, (laughs) you know, uh, you're going to lose. Like, he went into a negotiation and said, this is what I need in order to get my negotiation. You know what? He didn't get it uh, because he played his card and they said no. And then he defaulted by saying, okay, well, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema say they won't vote to overturn the filibuster, so therefore I'm going to take that as as good as a promise on a piece of paper. Whatever. But the Democrats and MSNBC and all those people, they, they acted as though this very simple, I don't have much of a hand to play, so I'm just going to try this for a couple of days, was a violation of democratic norms because McConnell was supposed to say, okay, you guys won. I give in, I give up. What do you need? What do you want? But they didn't really win. You know, they didn't really win the Senate. That's the whole point. They, the Senate's a tie and it has to run somehow. And classic rules suggested that, you know, if the vice president can break a tie, then, then Democrats should probably get the, you know, get the margin of, uh, of control in the Senate. But, you know, like I say, if they, if, if things had gone the way they thought they were going to go on election day, and this is the key, they would have controlled the Senate with four by a four seat margin and they would have won 15 seats in the house. And that didn't happen because the public didn't want to give them control of the house and Senate and presidency in a uniquely strong position. I mean, that's the collective effect of the election. That was Noah's, basic point in his very fine piece in the December commentary, All Are Punished, which is 
Trump lost and the Democrats lost. And I mean, the Democrats lost as much as they could lose while Biden was winning pretty much. And that was even written thinking that, you know, they were the Republicans were probably going to prevail in Georgia, which obviously they didn't. Noah. Yes. <laughs> Don't have anything to add. He's to so that. calm. I, think. I know. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I guess he, he got it out in the pre-show. He got out he got out all the all the all the anger in the pre-show. No. Um I just think we are so the Democrats are acting. When Rahm Emanuel said in 2009, you know, you never, you should never let a crisis go to waste, A, there was a huge crisis, and B, Democrats had won the most commanding victory uh, in 28 years um, uh, since Ronald Reagan's victory in 1980, or you could say 84, but I mean, um, 80 is, a, I think, a better model. And the Republicans were shell-shocked, and he got, he got, a mammoth legislation through and we have a very different situation here and Democrats want Biden and, and the house and the Senate to act as though they have a mandate for massive cultural and political change. And they, they don't have a mandate for massive cultural and political change. All the obstacles in their way are institutional <clears throat> when they, hate those institutions. I mean, let's be pretty frank about this. They hate the filibuster. They hate the Senate. They don't like the Senate's anti-majoritarian character. And they don't really understand why they can't just exercise unilateral power. So the fact that they have a 50-50 split, which necessitates a power sharing arrangement, is going to drive them and has driven them as crazy or more crazy than it would if Republicans just maintained control. They understand power. They don't understand institutions. But I mean, if you understand power, then you understand you 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 take you take measure you take a measure of your forces and try to figure out where they are now, where they will be in six months, and where they might be in two years, so that you so that you deploy them well. And um, spending all of your political capital in January of twenty twenty one, rather than husbanding it, and 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 by the way, like if the well, that's vaccine- the theory of behind why Mitch McConnell won the power sharing arrangement negotiations, even though no one has won something as silly as that, um, is that his only objective was to get everybody to show their cards on the filibuster. Didn't matter whether it was on paper, didn't have to be on paper. A promise to not nuke the filibuster is as revocable as anything else. Uh, It was just merely a demonstration of loyalties that can be exploited some years down the road. But right, but I mean, simple fact of the matter is that uh, I, I mean I hate to say this because we just had an inauguration and we just had an election four months ago. But there's an election in 20 months, and uh, Democrats are likely, although the Republicans can can screw this up for themselves, are likely to lose control of the House and Senate at the end of 2022. Simply, you know, by dint of. Uh, you know, uh, historical experience and the nature of things. And so Biden needs to get stuff up on the board to strengthen the Democratic hand so that when they go to the public in 2022, they do better than most parties do in midterms. And he has an opportunity to do that, right? I mean, uh, doing COVID, doing handling the vaccinations and COVID well uh, and, and, getting us out of this to the extent that that is something that a president or a party can do, you know, faster than people expect with the attendant economic explosion 
uh, into positive territory that will be that will come from people believing that everything is opening again is what his party needs. Getting involved in procedural arguments and hysteria about who about the filibuster and transgenderism are not what he needs. They are the opposite of what he needs. He needs, I mean, in an odd way, what he needs to do is say, I'm spending 24 hours a day on COVID until COVID is done. He doesn't need to make a big speech on on racial equity on the 26th of January, which is what he's going to do later today. He needs to say, I am focused like a laser beam on this one thing until we get it fixed and and get, get the country on the right track. But this was the bargain he struck with his coalition once he became the nominee, which was, and it's why Susan Rice has been given this odd position to like, you know, weave racial equity into every aspect of the administration's work, climate change, COVID, every, everything has to be about race to this, to this group, because, you know, given the events of the past year, they will point to that and say, without this kind of motivated, uh, voter base, you never would be in this position. So there's, you know, we see conservatives are, are very uh, sensitive to this, but every time there's an announcement of a cabinet official or a administration official, it has to tick all the boxes, you know, the gender, the race, are they, you know, are they transgender? Are they this color? Are they that color? And it, it becomes almost like background noise because we're so used to it, but that's servicing a constituency that did give him a lot of uh, leeway in a general election because they really wanted to see Trump gone. And I don't think that Chuck Schumer is as institutionally crafty as Mitch McConnell has proven himself to be. So I don't think he's even thinking in those terms of, you know, the sort of long game, the way that McConnell has has done so ably, regardless of whether you like McConnell's political views as a strategist and an institutionalist, he's been remarkably effective. And I don't see either Pelosi or Schumer having that level of of kind of uh, patience and discipline to sh- in their own Democratic Party. I just don't see it. And, and they have been given this great gift of, you know, a former president who was who was kind of a disaster. And but they can squander that gift. Right. Well, we should talk about how they might squander that gift. But before we do, I want to point out that in the world of uh, we, we heard, you know, we had the uh, we had the confirmation of Janet Yellen as Treasury, Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, who would run the Fed and nonetheless has to get the title more important to the mainstream media of the first female Treasury Secretary. Like she was already the first female head of the Fed, which is arguably way more important than being Treasury Secretary. But okay, that box is now ticked off. Congratulations. Well, if you want to know what that means, if you want to understand what that effect, what effect that will have on your portfolio, on the on the economy of the United States, and on the policies that make this country run, you got to go listen to our friends at the Bonson Group and subscribe to their two newsletters, the Daily DC Today dot com and DividendCafe.com, the weekly analysis. Bonson Group uh, manages $2.6 billion uh, by coastal firm um, that uh, has 27 professionals who uh, are intimately familiar with the intersection of public policy uh, and personal finance and investing and uh, bring that knowledge to bear on every decision they make and on every opinion they express and, uh, uh, for example, uh, and, and this goes beyond simple investing to something like COVID and its effect. Um, David Bonson 
uh, yesterday put out a, a newsletter, the dctoday.com, going through systematically going through charts, mostly involving California and the mishandling of the COVID crisis and the way the numbers are working um, that were just eye-opening and revelatory to me. That's what you can do if you really understand how numbers work and how stats work. And uh, and if I had money, I would give it to David to invest for me because these charts are so fantastic. I'm pretty sure that he could make a nice chart for me with my money and make it look good. Um, that's how much I wish I could invest with the Bonson Group. And so you should, too. Uh, remember, the dctoday.com, dividendcafe.com, the Bonson Group, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Uh, give it a look. Uh, give it a try, uh, get wisdom, uh, get perspective, and avoid the intellectual spaghetti of most financial management and advice firms. Bonson Group, our sponsor today. Uh, so, what? What? We just talked about democratic, weird democratic fights. And uh, whether or not they're they're heading down a bad path now, my, my our critics on the right would say, "What do we care if they're heading down? This is who they are. This is you know this is how it works. This is why they're in there. They're there to destroy the country right now to kill it." And, to, and I agree that like their policies are terrible and their ideas are terrible. And it just is interesting to me that um, uh, their uh, political strategy, I think, is terrible. That they're playing the game wrong. <laughs> Um, and I think that's a necessary thing to point out. It's just of interest because it also gives you some sense of how you might fight against it and where, where to push what, where their weak spots are and where their sore spots are and where to push it and where to, where to, where to challenge them and where to make them respond angrily. And so that they reveal who they are and they reveal their stripes and they reveal their obsessions and how their obsessions overwhelm. Uh, any effort at good governance and good management. I mean, that's part of, I think, what we've seen over the last year in the blue state handling of COVID restrictions and all of that is that um, uh, there's a, they're full of um, pride about how they uh, know how to run things. And they've run these things horrifically badly. Uh and uh, and and have had uh, not as much blowback as you would expect because of a friendly press. It's just that that simple. Um, however, I think we do need to talk about uh, the more obvious disunity and civil war in American politics, which is in the Republican Party. Just yesterday, after we finished the podcast, we got news that Rob Portman, uh, who was OMB director for uh, George. Uh, w. Bush, uh, Congress, uh, George H. W. Bush, whatever, uh, congressman from Ohio, senator from Ohio, is not running again in 2022. Uh, very conservative guy, but not so conservative, uh, but very much in the old mainstream, said it's impossible to get anything done here. Uh, life is really difficult now uh, in this partisan context. Uh so he's gone. The Oregon GOP issued a statement saying that the uh, January 6th insurrection was a false flag. There's more increasing evidence that January 6th was a false flag effort made by liberals to to tar uh, Donald Trump. Uh, the We already went through the vote of the Arizona party to censure uh, Jeff Flake, Cindy McCain, and Governor Doug Ducey. 
Uh, the Texas Republican Party seems to have adopted a QAnon slogan as its slogan. Um, there are a couple of other things going on. Uh, and of course, then there's the whole question of how people are talking about the uh, the, the upcoming Senate trial uh, in the impeachment, the second impeachment of Donald Trump. Um, so uh, we should try to unpack this because we can talk about what's right and wrong and good and bad and moral and immoral. But uh, let's talk about the practical political effect of these fights. Is there, it seems to me the practical political effect of these fights is, and it seems very clear, to have frozen any uh, forward motion toward the possible removal of uh, the conviction of Donald Trump in the Senate has been completely stymied. It's not going to happen. Republicans in the Senate have frozen in place. The four or five who seem intent on voting to convict are probably going to vote to convict. It seems very unlikely that, uh, that, that others will. So there's that. I don't know what, and I don't know what the practical effect of that is one way or the other, except to say that if Trump were convicted, he could conceivably be banned from running again in 2024, which would be helpful to the Republican Party, I think. But, you know, that's not going to happen. So uh, again, let's try to separate out the moral from the strictly political. How, how, how stands the Republican Party today? Well, I, I frankly cannot abide the premise. I do not think okay. it can. You do not think I don't it can want you to, I don't want you to not abide. I don't want you to not abide the premise because we're going to get to the reason you shouldn't abide the premise in two minutes. So just wait till you don't abide the premise. Still, I'm going to ask. Okay, just just wait for a minute. So, practical political effect is no, none, a lot, or totally catastrophic. Meaning. Democrats are going to overreach. Republicans are going to win in 2022, no matter what, no matter what they say now, because it's all going to be a, a referendum on the behavior of Biden and the Democrats. And so Republicans can do whatever they want now because Democrats are going to screw up. That's that I mean, the position is also only tenable as long as the evidence comports with what we know that is presented in uh, during the trial phase. We don't know what witnesses they're going to call and we don't know what they're going to say. Uh, so you think that 12, say 12 Republicans may break from the party's, seems to be the party's core uh, opinion, which is that Trump shouldn't be convicted uh, because of the evidence in the trial. You, you are no, it's hard to conceive of that. It's not hard to conceive of a, con- a condition that produces such humiliation, such embarrassment on the part of Republicans that a few break, but those who don't resolve to no longer uh, mount the kind of defense of this bulwark against critically examining what Donald Trump did in those 72 hours before and during the events of January 6th, that produces in them enough mortification that they back off from their current position, which is humiliating. But what, what, what is their current? So you're saying they will their vote. position is two not, things. But you're saying they will not vote to convict but they will back off their current position because well, I don't current know position we- is incomprehensible. Um, if we then we can break it down into two phases and allow me to elaborate on this in some detail. Um, the first is that uh, Donald Trump is being persecuted. This is the, the, the backstop that they go to generally. It's not his persecution. It's also your persecution. And that was essentially the claim that was made by Nikki Haley in an appearance on Fox news channel where she said, quote, now they're going to turn around and bring about impeachment, yet they say they're for unity, ellipses. 
I mean, at some point, I mean, give the man a break. I mean, just move on. Just move on. Literally.org. That was the premise behind moveon.org. It's time to just get over it, right? Um, the second is one that is a little bit more uh, intellectually supported, which is um, that there is really no constitutional remedy for a, a, a person who's now a private citizen who's not a, a president to be impeached. He's been removed from office. He was removed by the voters. Um, it's very confusing to the public that we're having these proceedings in the first place. And it is, especially if you're invested in preserving that confusion, um, which many Republicans are. They're not explaining, and why it's not in their interest to explain, why it's necessary to do this even after the president is removed. Now, I talked yesterday briefly about That's this. That's the president's left office. You mean. Left office. I talked briefly about this Congressional Research Service um, de- uh, legal sidebar, which I encourage everybody in our audience to read. It's called The Impeachment and Trial of a Former President Dated January 15. And it goes on, talks about the precedent here established, noted that there's debate within the legal scholarly community, but you know this is a 200-year-old debate. So to summarize all these arguments is difficult in the space of three pages. Nevertheless, it does say that a number of scholars have argued that delegates to the Constitutional Convention accepted that former officials could be impeached for conduct after they have left office. It comports with and tracks with state constitutions that precede the national constitution. It comports with British common law and precedent set in British common law. And it, the precedent that we've established here is the trial, the post-resignation trial, uh, 1876, of former Secretary of War William Belknap. Now, I want to read briefly from a 1999 Duke University journal that talks about the precedent established by the post-resignation trial of William Belknap. And it's actually very relevant. Quote, at a time of lost confidence in the integrity of government, the conduct of a former official can demand a political response. This response in the form of an impeachment may be more important than a legal response in the form of a prosecution. Regardless of the outcome, the Belknap trial addressed the underlying conduct and affirmed core principles at the time of diminishing faith in government. Absent such a trial, Belknap's rush to resign would have succeeded in barring any corrective political action to counter the damage to the system caused by his conduct. Even if the only penalty is disqualification from future office, the open presentation of the evidence and witnesses represents the very element that was missing in colonial impeachments. Such a trial has a political value that runs vertically as a response to the public and horizontally as a deterrent to the executive branch. The author of that passage was William or um, uh, Professor Turley. William Turley? Jonathan Jonathan Turley. Jonathan Turley. Thank you. Jonathan Turley, who is today before the Senate Republican conference, arguing why it's constitutionally um, offensive to impeach a president after office. He's changed his position, but his position is political. His legal uh, uh, assessment there seems rather, to use a turn of phrase, unimpeachable. And frankly, I I, I side with Jonathan Turley against Jonathan Turley here. The, uh, The notion here that there is some remedy in the Constitution seems plain, and the political merits behind it are unassailable. Um, okay. So I'm going to lay out my political understanding. This is where we got into a fight. And then uh, the, 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 the courtroom can be, can be Christine and Abe. Um, Cause you know, two jurors, <laughs> that's really a great way to do it. Um, politically, there seem to me to be three or four arguments on the right. One is Trump must be must be removed after impeachment because he incited a riot at the Capitol and threatened the foundations of our government. 
um, uh, and that it's an open and shut case. That would be where I am. That's what I said an hour into it. P- practically, politically, I said it needed to happen the day after the the event, um, uh, which I think p- politically has stood the test of time, <laughs> the test of the test of two weeks, or whatever, almost twenty one days. Um, because of course the um, the fact that this is going to extend into the second week of February simply allows the focus to have shifted from a horror that we saw immediately that required a speedy and fair proceeding to something where you're like, yeah, listen, he's out of office. What, what difference does it make? Like that. Okay. So if you really needed to do this to say this can never happen again, and we are going to, we are going to throw the book at anybody who even thinks about it or attempts it, it had to be done at the time because this was going to happen. What is now happening? Okay, but there. So that's that's the he needs to be impeached and removed because the 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 effect is clear, cause and effect. He he incepted the rally. He brought the ralliers to Washington, and he said, "Go down to the Capitol, open and shut case." He did not break the windows. He did not shoot the gun. He did not hit anybody with a fire extinguisher. He incited all of that, and for that he should be punished. Okay, that's that's one position. That's let's say that's the Mitt, that's the position where Mitt Romney is going to come down in the Republican Party, and where Liz Cheney came down uh, in the House. Then there is the he did nothing. He did absolutely. This is the Jim Jordan Matt Gates position. He did absolutely nothing. He didn't throw the fire extinguisher. He didn't break through the barriers. He didn't break the window. He didn't invade the Senate. He said, "Go home." And, uh, you know, he was using uh, rhetoric and heated rhetoric and all of that, but he is not responsible for the actions of adults over the age of 21 who made their own choices and did something terrible. And this is just a political, this is just another political attack on Trump in an effort to destroy him. And that is another argument that you can make that is consistent, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, thorough and it's sort of like does, you know, you can buy it or not buy it, but it's a consistent argument. Then there's a third argument, which is he may have done it, he may not have done it, but he's out of office and Jonathan Turley II is right and Jonathan Turley I is wrong and Michael Ludwig is right and uh, and Keith Whittington is wrong and the only remedy for impeachment in the Constitution is the removal of a president and he is no longer president, therefore he cannot be removed, therefore this is all uh, beside the point and you shouldn't have a trial because there is no punishment. The punishment was already affected before the trial by his loss in the election. That's a third position that I think is arguable. It appears that the Republican Party in aggregate is going for the worst possible position, which is some amalgam of all of them. Yeah, he may have done it, he may not have done it. Uh, give the guy a break. It's the Nikki Haley position. Look, let's move on. We want unity. They're being disuniting by having voted this in. And so we want to just unify the country and having it move on. And, you know, maybe he did it. Maybe he didn't do it. I don't know. But there is no remedy. Or maybe there is. But I don't think it's fair or whatever. And that seems to be what position the 
mainstream of the Republican Party in the Senate is going to take. Marco Rubio said, I just think this is dumb. But the, but the fact that it's, both, that it's both politically and constitutionally schizophrenic, right? So the part of the reason why it's so frustrating to listen to an obviously intelligent person like Nikki Haley say such garbage on a show like Laura Ingram's is that she knows that this isn't actually about Donald Trump. If you're a conservative in particular, you know this is about the executive, the institutions of our government. And the reason that it was that, that there is still a barn door open that needs to be closed not to Trump specifically, but to these kinds of actions specifically, is that we're in a unique moment in those two months between when an election happens and when a president is inaugurated. And during that time, it is the president who has an extraordinary power to pardon people, to commute sentences. I mean, in some ways, what he said at that rally was given a great deal more weight because anyone there who knows about the pardon power could figure, well, he's encouraging us. And, you know, he didn't say go smash, you know, smash glass and break skulls. But if we do that, he could pardon us for, I mean, there is a really unique amount of both power and lack of, of uh, responsibility to voters. If you're, if you've been voted out of office, but still have the office's power. And it is that door that if you're a conservative and you care about institutions, you should be eager to close regardless of whether it's Trump or anyone else. And I think the fact that they don't want to talk about that, it's easier in some ways to defend the outgoing president or to say, oh, you're overreacting. That is not an overreaction to the attack on our system of government. It is a it is a reasonable response to a strange situation that every single president faces between an election and an inauguration. Abe? So- John, I agree with your assessment of the various arguments, and I agree that the sort of hodgepodge argument that they seem to be going with is the worst argument as an argument. But it does have a, a, a different benefit, which is that it throws up and sustains this fog around the whole issue. Um, and and as, especially as time goes on, um, it, it creates more of an impression purely impressionistic that um, that we should move on, that there are so many reasons not to get bogged down in this right now um, and that this is getting out of control. Right. Well, I'm not saying, I think elected politicians defaulting to this fourth position, you got to take seriously the meaning of that. They're defaulting to that position because it is the most comfortable position for them to stand in, given all of the incentives and uh, and punishments that they see in their path, which, you know, you have to assume that they are reasonably good readers of the room, better readers of the room than we are. This is like their business. This is what they do for a living. Uh, appealing to enough people to get elected to office is what they know how to do better than, say, we know how to do it. We can talk about this in terms of what the future of the Republican Party holds, what what kinds of consequences it will have to have been seen to have assented in some fashion to what happened. Um, because one presumes that there, there, there will be no remedy short unless... Now, this is where I think it gets interesting with Noah... Noah's question of what goes on at the trial. I mean, I don't know what these trials will hold. It's impossible to say. But um, what if in the middle of the trial, somebody says, you know what, we shouldn't vote to convict. We shouldn't even have an up or down vote. 
let's all vote to say that what happened at the Capitol was terrible, that Donald Trump incited it, and that this should never happen again. And we're not going to have a conviction trial. We're just going to have a censure motion. Um, then what? Then what do Republicans do? Assuming that the evidence that's gathered says that all these people and all these depositions and stuff said, he said, "Come and show force and go to the Capitol," and I did what my president told me to do. The exact same thing that they're doing now. They painted themselves into a position in which they cannot concede. They cannot concede the, the facts that you've laid out there because we're talking about a man, the injury to a man, the person, his personality, and you by extension, and your personality and your right to exist. It is all personal. It is not about ideas. It is not about conviction. John, what you laid out is a series of uh, explanations, not excuses, explanations for behavior, the threat and fear of retribution from a Republican base that is deeply invested in Donald Trump, a man, because it is a reflection of them and their sense of frustration and alienation from the institutions that are supposed to govern this country. It's not just that, though. That's the positive. Then there's the negative. But, but, uh, but the yeah, 10 Republicans yeah, in the yeah. House who voted the way they did yeah. faced the precise same factors, the precise same inducements to behave in a way that they didn't behave in. And they said, screw those inducements. Screw my political future. The right thing to do is the principled thing to do here. And they did it. If that example didn't exist, it'd be much harder to make the case that others should follow it. <laughs> but that was 5% of the Republican caucus in the House. 5%. So a bunch of people did it. And I think they were noble and brave. And they were only noble and brave because it was, they were acting against what was self-evidently um, they were doing something that's the harder call rather than the easier call, which is something to be that is to be respected. And we can see it now in the, you know, this raging venom dripping pursuit by Molly, Madam Defarge Hemingway of, of Liz Cheney. Um, you know, uh, Liz Cheney, uh, she's in the tent, but she shouldn't be allowed to be in the leadership. I mean, how could you possibly have that as she knits Liz Cheney's name into her, into her woolen garment of hell, you know, I mean, you know, so there, there's, that's what was to be expected. And it, or maybe Liz Cheney didn't really expect it. It's hard to know. The situation was, was much more fluid and people are afraid of Molly Hemingway's knit, uh, you know, garment. So that, that is what, that's what Nikki Haley is doing is avoiding being knitted into Molly Hemingway's knit garment. Um, you know where where you end up being taken on the political guillotine and having your having your head chopped off. Okay, but let's assume. I mean, you said earlier that you know, uh, oh, we can assume that the Democrats will you know overreach and the Republicans will punish punish them in two years. I actually don't think that that's an assumption we should go forward uh, embracing because if I'm they my my classic favorite suburban wine mom who had a Black Lives Matter sign in my you know this summer in my yard and you know I'm kind of moderately liberal and I want to do the right thing and but I but there's definitely some overreach I'm worried about particularly my kids schools and whatnot if I have a choice between a kind of slightly overreaching critical race theory type candidate on the one hand coming from the Democrats and a QAnon supporter on the other I'm not necessarily going to be going to want to punish the critical race theorists. That seems less of a threat. And the most recent chaos of the Trump era is still a recent enough memory that I don't think we can guarantee that that overreach will be punished. And I think that's in part why they feel so emboldened right now. Okay. I think memory, the conditions that created 
the hell that we endured on on January sixth prevail today. They do. And, they do. You're right. And such but, that's why they must be remedied and addressed. And again, I like Christine's formulation because the party eventually will get around to realizing that as a vehicle for winning offices, and that is all it does. It can't do anything else effectively because it's not the mission statement. It's not how it's structured. It's not structured to be a cult or a club. You can't actually do any of that sort of thing effectively. So eventually when Republicans figure out that they can't win majorities around this around a personality complex about a guy who's never going to occupy office anymore, the the actual mission statement will take primacy. Again, who knows when that's going to happen, but it's... There is no Republican Party. The Oregon Republican Party that said that January 6th was a false flag is not the same party as the Maryland Republican Party that nominated and elected Larry Hogan. These are not the same party. That's one of the things that's going on here is these parties don't exist anymore in the way they used to. Uh, they are they are merely it is merely a faction umbrella, and uh, here's my point, which is you're right that in the choice if the choice is the QAnon person versus the you know the person who is somehow kind of a fellow traveler of critical race theory, but not not an expot not Ayanna Presley, but is you know I don't know Abigail Spanberger or so you know somebody who is seen as then that's that's a bad race for you know for the Republicans. Um, but just today, Biden is going to announce an end to drilling uh, on public lands, right? And he has ended fracking on public lands, and he has killed the Keystone Pipeline. And in 2022, in various states, hundreds of millions of dollars of ads are going to come out saying Biden has killed, uh, you know, has killed the energy, is killing the energy industry because he is enthralled to radical elements, uh, socialist elements that want to restructure and fundamentally change the way our economy works and impoverish us and make every person who has to buy a tank of gas or heat their home pay double, uh, just as we're just getting on our feet. And that's a good message. That's not QAnon and it's not critical race theory. And the Democrats are walking right into that buzzsaw. But here's where the committees do matter, is that a committee's job, a party's job, which does exist, is to recruit a candidate who can say that message effectively and to raise a lot of money around those ads that they have to ad- have ad buys in these, these states. Now, the problem the t- states you're talking about are easy ad buys. They're cheap. But nevertheless, you still have to raise a lot of money around it. And the committees are freaking out over the amount of people who have abandoned the Republican Party in the wake of these events. Yeah. Now, maybe they return entropically. Maybe that maybe Republicans don't have to do anything and just wait for Democrats to induce that kind of uh, a return to the mean and everybody coming home again. But maybe it doesn't. Yeah. But, you know, one thing that you need to do, you need to consider gum for your dental health. This is a fantastic thing. We've all been chewing gum all our lives. And now suddenly, you know what? It turns out chewing gum can really help with your dental health, but not all gum is created equal. Some might come in fancy packaging, but they only cover up bad breath, and others are loaded with sugar that can wreak havoc on your teeth. Luckily, the oral care experts at Quip have made a gum that stands out from the pack and one that can help prevent cavities that tastes great, too. It was only a few short years ago Quip reinvented the toothbrush for the modern age, and they've done it again this time with chewing gum, with a new gum that's actually good for your oral health and comes with a dispenser that'll remind you of the one-click candy you loved as a kid, it's like, you know, 
I guess I'm not supposed to mention what it is, but it's that one you click and the little sugar pellet came out and you put it in your mouth and you close it again and that's the gum. Uh, it can help prevent cavities and freshen breath when chewed for 20 minutes after eating. Sugar-free, tooth-friendly xylitol with zero calories. And to satisfy your taste buds, Quip added a long-lasting mint flavor, crunchy tri-layer design, and stamped it all with the classic Quip tongue. The, sim- the slim, travel-ready dispenser available in five colors packs and protects up to 10 pieces of gum at a time and fits in just about any purse or pocket for the go. And... A gum refill plan for is a gift that would keep on giving all year round. Quip's customizable subscription lets you chew and share at your own pace and not worry about running out. Plus, the more you buy, the more you save with both discounts on extra gum packs. It's not a substitute for brushing and flossing, but this is a great support for your oral health. Pair it with a Quip Electric toothbrush for adults and kids. Refillable floss and more great products right now. In addition to gum packs, Quip also delivers fresh brush head floss and toothpaste refills every three months from $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the misery of an in-store, of in-store shopping. And if you go to getquip.com slash commentary right now, you can get a free plastic dispenser with every refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash commentary, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary. Quip, the good habits company. Can I... Jumping yes. on this last uh, on yeah. Christine's points, I think it's interesting about uh, the suburban mom, wine moms and uh, being faced with the uh, QAnons versus the critical race theorists. Um, I'm not sure that it, it's that, first of all, that that is even going to be the fight or that it's going to play out that way. Because first of all, QAnon, I mean, if we really focus in on, on that, um, the QAnon prophecies have failed. And I think I think there's going to, there is, already is, it's going to continue to be some crumbling there among that, among those, um, the adherents. Um, whereas the, the Biden era of critical race theory is just getting off the ground. And that is, and that is going to uh, continue to thrive and throw up all sorts of issues. We have, um, in the first week of March, is the, the start of Derek Chauvin's trial. Um, God knows what that's going to bring out. Um, so there, there could be an opportunity here um, you know, just as 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 poorly as the, as the Republicans um, seem to seem to be handling um, the 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 moment where they could say where they could simply point out Democratic overreach and not um, then heap on their own brand of crazy, um, but there still might be a, a moments coming up. Um, given you know Biden's making his uh, speech on equity today, and where. They will be able to um, jump to a more uh, straightforwardly uh, accusatory message um, and move away from the the sort of uh, fringiest of the of the fringe on the on the right. This is a, this is a really good point, um, and I and I take it uh, and and agree with you about especially about QAnon. Um, I guess I, I would say in the post-QAnon right, it's more a concern, something Noah and John were arguing about, that the idea that the right has become kind of beholden to this cult of personality in Trump that, that can have a long tail effect on on conservatism in general, that we should try to discourage um, the victim mentality and the, the kind of polarized media environment that a lot of conservatives find themselves in. QAnon was the the starkest example of that, but the kind of organizing insular mentality that you see in social media dominated by by folks who bought into the QAnon is what it does concern me. Um, I 
I like the hopeful thinking, particularly because people in their own neighborhoods don't want disorder and violence and rioting and and they're sick of it. And they were promised it would stop because that's Trump's America, not Biden's America. So I take that point. I think that's a really, really good. They are, they are both conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And so they both behave like conspiracy theories. I fully expect human to transmogrify into some more overarching uh, idea of social organization that that's that is uh, you know out to get you and exists in the shadows and it'll it exists after Trump. I mean, the notion here that all these people are going to look around and say, well, you know, I guess Trump wasn't the the executor of a plan to rid us of uh, pedophiles in every sector of society from Oprah to the Clintons. Uh, so I guess I was wrong. Let's get back to going to work and just being, you know, productive citizens. They'll figure out some way to keep keep the theory alive, just as CRT is is a conspiracy theory that can't can't be extirpated by logic. Right. And this is, by the way, I think one important point is Christine said there's a social media uh, feedback loop that keeps QAnon going. Um, there is a much larger and much more dominating social me- media feedback loop that will keep. Um, the race equity, critical race theory stuff at the forefront because, uh, as Abe says, the Derek Chauvin trial, the stuff that's going to go on with uh, with with the um, the adoption of equity standards, which mean essentially a favorable option for for uh, supposed you know uh, supposedly mistreated minority groups and all of that, and uh, any blowback, any pushback. Uh, will be unfairly and unjustly covered by the mainstream media as being a species of white supremacy. And uh, polling will show that uh, the most radical elements of this theory are supported uh, by people, just like supposedly people didn't like cops in the summer of uh, 2020. And uh, there will, the, the media will be pressured, feel pressure and will give in to the pressure not to cover this appropriately and fairly. And so we will have the ultimate silent majority story of 2022, which is we'll get to November, 2022. This is one possible scenario. Republicans will blow, will blow Democrats out in the house and Senate because the Biden administration has become, it's simply a mouthpiece and the party has become simply a mouthpiece of this radical vision of the United States. And it will take them all by unbelievable surprise because they won't be reading about it. They won't hear about it. The whole idea will be that these ideas are so noxious. You shouldn't even write about them. And anybody who publishes an op-ed that says, uh, I don't know, things are going bad. will you know, people inside the, inside the organization will say they feel unsafe and that they're being, you know, they're being targeted and all of that. And then just as was the case with the defund the cop stuff and its effect in South Florida and various other places in turning the, away the tide of the Democratic House majority and reversing it so that Republicans are only within five votes of taking back the the House. I mean, that that could really happen. We're going to hear every single person who ever says anything Q-related is going to be splashed in front of our eyes, wherever they are, in Idaho, in Guam, you know, on on an island off Alaska. We, We will know about them. But a city council person in, you know, in Oakland who says it's good to go shoot cops, we're not going to hear about that. Or we'll hear about it three weeks later, or it'll be Andy No who, like, surfaces it, and then somebody will beat somebody on the head for having, for having retweeted Andy No, who will probably end up getting deplatformed. 
So this will all get snuck up on. And that's my, that, those are the two things. And the other thing is, since social media is, of course, something that you experience on the internet, you better watch out because they're coming for you. You know they are. How did you choose which internet service provider to use? Uh, look, the thing is, we have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve, and they take advantage of us with their data caps, their streaming throttles, and they log your internet activity, and they sell that activity to other big tech companies and advertisers. So to prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all my devices. With ExpressVPN, that simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP cannot see any of your activity. Just think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked by ISPs or other tech giants who can then sell your information for profit. That's the reason I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash commentary to get three months extra free. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to learn more. So, guys, um, uh, are you – what Nikki Haley said last night, what some other people – Marco Rubio saying that, you know, that the impeachment uh, – that an impeachment involving a president who, uh, uh, you know, like uh, led an insurrection is dumb. Um, these are like people I thought were like the reason – were like the reasonable voices in the Republican Party. And so that's why I feel like I'm in despair. I'm in despair because if they look at this and say, I gotta, I'm looking for my own future to get to say something that will at least make me anodyne or inoffensive to uh, people that, uh, you know, four years ago I had contempt for. Nikki Haley literally said in 2016, I think as Noah said, she said Donald Trump is going to provoke and promote violence as president. He's already done it as a candidate. Yes, she went into the administration. I understand that. But, I mean, her she's trying to preserve her viability within the system. You know, as opposed to saying nothing, she could also not go on Laura Ingram's show. She could stay out of it. You don't have to express an opinion if your opinion is not one that you need to retail. Marco Rubio could say, I can't say anything about this. I'm about to be a juror in a trial. But he didn't say that. So I'm very sad. That's all I'm saying. And we are only hearing from the most vocal opponents of this situation. And you can count them on two hands in the Senate um, conference, for uh, the Senate Republican conference. So we don't know what everybody else is thinking. I think it's reasonable to assume that they sort of align with <clears throat> where Nikki is, where... Um, Marco Rubio is, where Tom Cotton is, uh, maybe less Mike Rounds and the people who are really aggravated on behalf of the president, but nevertheless. Um, so we just don't know. But it's, you know, to take your favorite analogy, as Christine said, everybody's operating just based on their environments, what they can see and what they see are the shadows on the wall and the base looks really Trumpy right now. Um, but it's only right now. And Donald Trump will not be this dominant figure within the party for 
in perpetuity. It's just they're trapped in this particular moment and they can't see beyond what's right in front of their faces. But the people who aren't talking maybe have a different conception of what the political landscape is. You know, in the world of investing, we have this general fight, not to be too David Bonson-y here, but we have this general fight between people who say, you know, you want to invest for the long term or are you going to day trade? Like, are you, do you, you know, does a, should a company do things that will, that will benefit its bottom line five years from now or should it be doing what it can to maximize its stock price at every given moment of the day? And do our executives incentivized wrongly because they are given an incentive with stock options and various other things to maximize the stock price uh, in the short term rather than look to the health of the company in the long term? And there's no answer to that, right? And this is what we're talking about with Republicans. It's very easy to see the short-term threat or the short-term gain from not getting Trump mad and from not getting Molly Hemingway to knit you into her garment of doom. Um, it's very easy to see why you want to avoid that. It is harder at a moment like this to see what is in your long-term interests and your long-term best health because you don't know what the long term has to offer, but you know what the threat is or you know what the obstacle is right in front of you. However, having said that, people who own the future think about the long term. Uh, Barack Obama, despite what he says in his book, knew that his speech in 2004 was the launch of a presidential campaign. Maybe it wasn't 2000. He wasn't even senator yet. Maybe it wasn't 2008. Maybe it wouldn't be 2012. Maybe it was 2016. But he knew where he was going, and he knew what his message was, and he knew why he was peddling it, and he knew how it was going to be heard, and he was playing a long game. And people who succeed and change politics permanently are people who can see and play a long game. That's how Biden ended up as the nominee of the Democratic Party. He had a strategy. He started in April of 2019. He started earlier than April of 2019, and he did not deviate from it. He did not change his view on Medicare for All. He did not change his view on this. He did not change his view on that. He had an idea, and he stuck with it, because the idea was, I need to get past all these guys, beat them, consolidate the party, and then beat Trump. And I can't. if I do X, I'm going to make it impossible for me to get to Y. That's how you win in the long term. That's how you play that game. And so it seems to me that, you know, what what we're seeing here is the lack of imagination that leads people like Nikki Haley and Marco Rubio to never become president and to not have a future. Because if they can't see clear to doing something clever and inventive at this moment, rather than doing something that looks craven, even to the people whom they're doing it for. Does anybody really believe that Marco Rubio wouldn't, if he had his druthers, vote to impeach and remove Trump for what happened on January 6th? You know, I, I, I'm sure he would under other circumstances. But, you know, so does he get credit from the base for not being a true believer? No. True believers know what a, you know, what a suck up looks like, you know. That's just the way it is. So with that, we will come back to you tomorrow. For Christine, Abe, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>